0: Well, Mark twelve. Um, I don't want to particularly look at the parable of the uh, laborers in the vineyard because we've uh, we looked at that when we looked at the uh, parallel record in in Luke. Um, when we when we read through a chapter from the Gospels like this one in Mark twelve, we can get the idea that the, all the incidents and the bits of teaching that are recorded uh, are kind of. Well, not in any particular uh, sequence, and that uh, it's maybe a chronological sequence, but often we fail to see the connections uh, between uh, the different pieces of teaching, the the different uh, incidents that are recorded. But actually, in nearly all the chapters of the Gospels, if you look carefully, you'll see that there is a theme being presented, being developed. And... uh, here in, in Mark twelve, I suggest that the theme is of total dedication, and that anything less than that is in fact absolutely obnoxious to God and, and His Son. You uh, start off, as I say, with, the, with this parable of the uh, not the the laborers in the vineyard really, but the um, the husbandman. Let's say the wicked husbandman. The The Jews, I guess, and they are to be replaced uh, by at the end of the parable by people who were going to render the fruits in their season. Now, unfortunately, in this chapter in Mark, that's not actually mentioned. This is Mark 12, uh, verse nine. Mark just says, uh, records that the Lord said he will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard to others. Uh, In the other records, uh, Matthew 21:41, for example and they will render to him the fruits in their season they will render the fruits in their season and that leads on to the same use of the the same word uh, render uh, here in mark 12 in uh, verse uh, 17, render the same word to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So this is carrying on from the parable that says that we are to render the fruits of the the vineyard to the master in their seasons. And the idea can be, I think, that when the Lord, uh, as it were, comes into our lives, then we render him something. Um, the idea of sort of Sunday Christianity, that you go to the meeting and you have your spiritual time and you render to the Lord, and then you go back and live a life that is maybe not particularly discernibly different from the life lived by the uh, the guy next to you who believes nothing or believes in another religion or whatever. And so Jesus is picking up on that. I think he's told a story which leaves us being the people who are to render uh, fruit. In its season to our Master. But then he goes on to say, You are to render to God what is God's. Now, in the context there, as uh, just read in, in Mark 12, um, verse 15, he says, Bring me a denarius, a penny, that I may look at it. And they, they bring it, and he says to them, Whose is this image and inscription? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And The idea, of course, is that what has got God's image and superscription should be given to him. Now, what has got God's image and superscription? Well, it's us, and it's our very body, because we are created in the image of God, and we have his inscription. And the idea is that that was an engraving. That means, this is mine. That if you engrave on something your name... It is yours. And so Jesus is saying, whatever's got God's image and superscription, his signature, his uh, mark of ownership, you give to God. Now, that is you and me. Yes, when you stand there in the nutty Aristarchus in the shower, uh, that's all you are. You have ultimately nothing else, and that's how you came into this world, and that's how you shall leave. And that is God's. And so he suddenly lifts the idea of rendering uh, things to god to a totally different level that he's spoken earlier about rendering to god uh, and the uh, the owner ultimately of the uh, of a vineyard is God because he sends his son to see whether there's been fruit and they, uh, they kill him and don't reverence him and so he, that is God He gives the vineyard to others, to us who are to render uh, the fruit to him, but then Jesus carries that theme on in this chapter and says well what are you to render? You you are in the image of God, you have got uh, his inscription, his insignia on you And at the very lowest uh, point in human life, maybe things have really, really gone wrong in your life, and you can be left with absolutely nothing in terms of relationships, maybe financially or whatever. Well, all you have is yourself. And it's easy when you get to those low moments to think, well, I I am nothing. You are so much because you are human. Now, without uh, being humanistic... It is true to say that there is a a huge significance and value in the human person, in being human. Because unlike the animals, unlike any other form of creation, we are uniquely made in the image of God. And this not only uh, means that we have value, we are to perceive that value in other people. This is why we are told, don't curse men, uh, James says, because they also are made in the image of God. And that means that we are not to be respectful just of some human beings, but of all persons simply because they are human. Now, there is a, a sort of a, a, a kind of theology, a kind of approach uh, to uh, the Bible that will try to make out that human beings are rotten, sinful, through and through, and that we're basically bad. Uh, that i i think is not is not right we are made in the image of god and without getting too uh, deep into sort of atonement theory and all this sort of thing I, i would put one observation to you that whatever you posit about human nature you are saying about the son of god about the lord jesus because he was fully human and because he was fully human Uh, Therefore, whatever you say about humanity, about human nature, you are saying about the Son of God. And the Lord Jesus, in his life, was holy, harmless, separate from sinners, and undefiled. That's uh, what we we read about the Lord Jesus. And he achieved that despite being human. So it's not as if, uh, when you're sleeping, let's say... Uh, God sort of looks down upon you from above and, and sort of is disgusted and revolted by your human body lying there on your sheets. Uh, not at all. This is not Bible teaching. This is uh, some form of uh, Augustine and later Catholic kind of thinking that has been very attractive to some, some Protestants. But this is, this is a philosophy. This is not what the Bible says about us at all. It is human sin and human thinking which is the problem, not the physical body that that we've got. So then, we have the image and the inscription of God upon us, and sure, give to Caesar what's got anything of his written on it, uh, his face, his bust, um, as it were, and uh, the uh, little letters that were written on that little uh, piece of metal, that that says you know Caesar. Uh, so okay, that's his. But you yourself, you bear the image of God, and therefore you are to be totally given to God. Not just rendering a bit of fruit to God in the season, just occasionally Sunday morning Christianity, um, but in who you are all the time. This is a very uh, a very uh, strong idea. Now. The Greek word translated render here, it really does mean to pay back. And that is, in most cases, not every case, but in most cases of its quite wide usage in the New Testament, that is what it means, pay back. As if you have been given something and you are to give it back. So don't have the idea that, well, I'm sort of gracing God with my generosity. You have been given your body. You did nothing to be alive, you didn't buy your existence from God or from your parents, everything is of God, and as the psalm says, of your own have we given you, that in that sense all our quote giving is a giving back, and this is the significance of that Greek word meaning not just to give but to give back, render, give back to God what is his, because it's got his image and superscription on it. Now, again, this is a challenge, and yet it is a comfort, uh, that all the time, every second of our existence, we are bearing what is God's. We are what is God's, and we are to seek ways, practically, to give back to God absolutely everything. Now, this is a claim upon our whole life, upon our body, uh, upon our whole being. It not only applies to uh, our physical health, looking after that physical body, but, of course, to our use of of our time, of our life, absolutely everything to be given back to God. So it is not for us to seek sort of great material benefit and advantage for ourselves in this life, to seek to please ourselves, to build up our own kingdom, our own, quote, possessions uh, of bank accounts, of, of physical possessions, etc., The whole idea is that we are to give back to God absolutely everything. Now, the same word, to give back, occurs quite commonly in the New Testament about what shall happen at the day of judgment. For example, Revelation 22, verse 12, the Lord Jesus says, I'm coming soon to give, that is to give back, to every man according as his work shall be. So there is a recompense, a giving back. To us at the day of judgment according to how we have lived now tracing that theme through we are given everything everything we have, everything we are is a gift from God we are to give it back but when Jesus comes back he will pay us back according to what uh, we gave to him in this life so what are we to uh, make of that I think what it means is that the gift that God gave us of everything that we are, everything that we have, in a sense, he has given it to us, and it does, in that sense, belong to us, although it is also ultimately his. Uh, Insofar as we realize that and give it all back to God, at the day of judgment, it will be given to us, as it were, totally as our very own. Now, Paul talks about this when he, he says that we are given things to manage, and we must be faithful Uh, in stewardship of that which is another man's, that is God's, um, so that we shall be given our very own. So I think that that, this is the idea of this, uh, this sort of theme that's developed at some length throughout the New Testament around this word for render, paying back. Uh, That we have given everything, we therefore should give it all back to God, but at the day of judgment, insofar as we have done that, it will be, as it were, paid back to us, and we shall have all that as our very own. Now, I suspect that uh, we uh, all seek, really, ultimate freedom. We would love to be totally free. And when we read Romans 6, we're told that at baptism we changed masters. We didn't find ultimate freedom in the sense that we were slaves to sin, and then we changed our master, we became slaves to God and to the Lord Jesus. And yet the great paradox is that through that process, we do come, finally, I think, at the Day of Judgment in the Kingdom of God, to radical freedom, radical in, in the sense of being totally independent agents. That we will sort of find ourselves or be ourselves uh, as totally radical independent uh, beings for the first time and then we shall be finally free and the freedom that is promised in the New Testament will come to its ultimate term I guess when we finally are uh, as it were born of of spirit uh, when the Lord Jesus returns that then we shall have that which is our very own in this world, we are to be faithful over that which is another man's, and that's God's, but we will, that will then be, as it were, paid back to us, and it shall be our very own. I find that idea really quite, um, really quite wonderful, that uh, ultimately we shall not simply be slaves or servants of God and of Jesus, uh, we shall ultimately be absolutely free, independent agents, forever and ever and ever. All that comes, I think, from the Lord Jesus developing the theme from his earlier parable when he says, you know, you are the uh, the new faithful husbandman who shall render fruits to the owner, which is God, in their season. But he goes on to say, basically, look, this doesn't mean just occasionally that, oh yeah, now it's the season for, for the figs, okay, we'll give him the figs, now it's the season for the, the grapes, we'll give him the grapes. Um, he's saying this is an absolute uh, total devotion and and commitment and he takes this idea further throughout this chapter um, verse 28 it's recorded this incident about the question about which commandment is, is the, the first of all the ten uh, this was a a, a a sort of a, a common popular question amongst Jewish theologians, as it is to this day, is Ten Commandments. uh, Which is the first? Because the order of the commandments, uh, they recorded uh, three times in the Old Testament, the order of the commandments and the wording of them changes slightly. And in any case, which of them is the most important? And Jesus gives, uh, at first blush, a a strange answer, because he quotes here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, etc. And then he goes on. He doesn't leave it there. He says, 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And then he appears to make a grammatical mistake at the end of 31. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Now, what they want, there's ten commandments there, as it were, uh, on the list, and they say, which is the greatest? He quotes two of them. And he says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these two. So he puts those two together. What he's saying is that because there is one God, therefore you should give absolutely everything to him, your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So... The way in which the channel through which we achieve this love of God is through loving our neighbour as ourselves. Now, there are times in the New Testament when this command about loving your neighbour as yourself appears to be quoted in the context specifically of life in the ecclesia, life in the church, as if our neighbour. Uh, just as the neighbor in the context of Israel was not necessarily the Gentile world, but your neighbor in the community of God. Uh, But, of course, you can read it in a a wider sense, the neighbor as just anyone who's next to you in in life. The point is, the people around us, and specifically the church, the body of Christ, the community of, of God's people, this is the channel that we are given through which to love God, the one God, with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. All our emotion, our physical strength, our intellectual ability. All this is to be directed to, to God. And the channel that that is expressed in is through engagement with others. Now, there is a growing sense i think or maybe it's just that i keep meeting people who have this idea um that look i love god i read the bible i pray to god oh yes i'm a very spiritual person but oh well i don't go to that church or that ecclesia or that gathering or this or that because of the people and well because no no this one is doing that and that one is that and this one believes that and that one's uh all divorced and that one's uh probably gay and and the rest of it um we are totally missing the point because that is not love of God love of God is not sitting in your apartment or your front room or your back room or your bedroom or whatever uh, loving God um, just as a, an act of the intellect it 's got to have some some praxis it 's got to it 's got to involve engagement with people and it 's that engagement with people that I think as you get older gets harder as you get more worldly wise and you get more experienced with disappointment etc so I think that that bit of the Christian walk actually gets a bit harder as time goes on now <clears throat> the uh, the scribe replies um, that uh, this is 33 that this is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices in other words the scribe realized that the teaching of the whole burnt offering whereby they had to cut the animal up into its parts its liver, its kidneys, its heart, etc uh, and offer it to God, that that was teaching the same thing and yes it does and you know they would have put their hand on the head of the animal identifying themselves with the animal and then cut it up into its parts And he quite rightly perceives that that was saying the same thing. Now, Jesus says in response to that, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I think what he means by that is that the kingdom of God, both in its future sense and in its uh, present sense of uh, being under the, the kingship of God and his son, is all about that kind of total dedication. He's saying this is what eternity in the kingdom of God is going to be like. And if you perceive it in this life, then you're not far at all from the kingdom. So that is how we shall eternally be. And quite honestly, if that's not how we want to to be in this life, then it would be a, a pretty bad and sad eternity for us to be totally dedicated to God and I I suppose that uh, we all realize that we do not rise up to that fullness of total devotion but the point is or should be that we want to and if we want to then I think that is that is extremely important because that is how we shall be in the kingdom all the sort of human barriers which there are to that to achieving that level of, of commitment uh, will be taken away now this arises out of a belief that God is one. Now we as non-Trinitarians tend to uh, quote the, the teaching about the, the oneness of God as if to say to the Trinitarian groups, well there you are, you're wrong and I'm right. And yes, of course it, it is clear that God is one and not three, not ten, not twenty, nor a thousand. Uh, but the point is that if that's just where it stays, we have radically missed the point. And I uh, fear uh, that we can easily get in the, the mindset of thinking that serving God means uh, being aware of all the Bible verses that say God is one and uh, the sort of non Trinitarian arguments and using those against Trinitarians and thinking we have done God's service. We are missing, I think, almost the whole point that the unity of God is a command. What commandment is the first of all? Verse 28, and Jesus says, God is one. The unity of God is a commandment. That means you've got to do something. Not argue about it. Uh, you've got to do something. It is a commandment that requires everything from you. The fact that God is one. And, you know, thank God that we have been brought by... Various means to understanding the unity of God and not all the other ideas that there are around. Uh, Okay, but this is a commandment. And, okay, you got that straight that there's one God. Okay, good. But do something with it. This is a commandment. And, in fact, that understanding that there is one God has a huge personal effect upon you. It means that we are to sacrifice ourselves For him. Now, in uh, some of the accounts there are of religious Jews making their last stand and Masada and things like that, some of them died shouting, "The Lord, the Lord is one." The uh, the Shema as their sort of great battle cry. But this was why they were giving their lives. Now, okay, they, they. didn't have it all right about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ but in a sense the unity of God is a demand for our all right to our last breath, right to our last stand in in this world now he goes on therefore to criticise the scribes who uh, verse 40 devour widows' houses and talks about how they shall receive greater condemnation But the last four verses of the chapter, when he sees the widow come and throw her coins into the treasury, this continues that theme. I mean, he says in verse 40 that uh, the scribes devour widows' houses, and straight away he goes on to talk about a widow. There must be a connection. See, this is what I started by saying, that, that there is great thematic connection. And when he uses the word devour. Oh, sorry, uh, 40. When he uses the word greater, these shall receive greater condemnation. Uh, greater is the same Greek word uh, translated um, in verse uh, 40 th- 44. They threw in of their abundance. Abundance and uh, greater in verse 40, this is the same word. They shall receive abundant condemnation. And these people came and threw in abundantly or greatly. Now, with those connections in in mind, uh, especially the fact that this woman throws in all that she has, and he's just said verse forty they devour widows' houses, and a house doesn't necessarily mean in Greek and Hebrew thought a, a bricks and mortar; uh, it can be not only a family, but also a life, a livelihood. Uh, and she threw in her livelihood, her house, if you like, uh, into the, the coffers of these guys, of these scribes. So that there must be a connection between devouring widows' houses and then the, the account of the widow throwing in to these same sharks, these same scribes, uh, throwing in her, her all that she had. And so the idea of them receiving abundant condemnation must surely connect with, it seems, these same men uh, throwing abundantly into the treasury to be seen of men. And, I'm afraid, the conclusion would seem to be that those guys who threw in of their abundance, of that which was over and above, uh, in other words, the, the money they didn't really need, that these are the guys who shall be condemned greatly, abundantly. Now, cynically, we would say, but these guys, they like, well, they gave something to God. All right, it wasn't everything, and yes, it was of their abundance, it was that which was over and above what they could spare, but at least they didn't, like, spend it on expensive coffees, at least they uh, they gave it to God. But it's rather like Animas and Sapphira. You could say, yeah, well, okay, they told a lie, but, um, I mean, they did sell their property, and they did uh, give... A fair sum of it to God, and it had to be a fair proportion of, of the money that they got for the uh, the gift to appear legitimate. They I would argue they kept back a not very significant sum for themselves. You could say, yeah well, they lied, well, we all fail, um, but you know good for them, they, they gave a certain amount. Um, okay, shame they lied, but all the same, pretty good generosity, Zap, you're dead. You know, sometimes I get the impression, reading the Bible and the New Testament, that the Lord Jesus is so gracious that all you've got to do is say yes pretty well and you'll be there. But then, one cannot avoid this kind of chapter and these themes that are clearly being presented there of total and absolute dedication. And that is, of course, how it should be, because if he died for us on the cross and invites us to pick up that cross and follow him if we are to be true Christians... This asks a lot. It asks for radical generosity, not just of our abundance, uh, but this poor woman throwing in all that she had, all her livelihood, all that she had. Um, It demands an awful lot. And it's quite right that it should. I mean, how else could it be any other way? Sort of, yes, I made this huge commitment to you, but uh, it's okay, you don't have to do much. Yet on the other hand, you know, we have the whole thing of salvation by grace, that works can't please God, well, can't buy our salvation. They can please God, but they can't buy our salvation. And it's quite right that there is that, I suppose, irresoluble paradox. Uh, I know there's ways to resolve it, to say, yes, we're saved by grace, but we should respond to that by being generous and doing works and all the rest of it and giving our lives to God. Yes, I know, I've said that many times, but... In the end, I suggest that this whole issue of salvation by pure grace, uh, by faith alone, and yet the themes such as we got in this chapter of a total demand upon us, uh, I would suggest that they are intended to not be resolved. Uh, They are intended, therefore, to remain, to continually work in our conscience, because there is no doubt that if he died for me, then I should die for him and for all his people.